In fact, this movie reminds me of a story in my own uh, past when I found myself on my way to Australia. It was 1999, and I began the seminary journey here at Asbury and Wilmore, and um, we were living in Indiana, and I was commuting back and forth every week. And I did that for three or four years, and then I came to a fork in the road. I was offered a, a position as a youth pastor at a new church, and I needed to choose between staying in Indiana and taking that job or moving to Wilmore with my wife, Christina, and continuing my seminary studies. I chose to stay in Indiana and continue the studies as a commuting student, but after about two years, I found myself in a season of discontentment. Nobody here can relate to that, I'm sure. <clears throat> we had just had our first son, Sam, and I was faced with the challenge of continuing seminary studies from 220 miles away, doing full-time youth ministry and being the father to a new son, or letting go of my job and moving us to Wilmore, Kentucky. And during that time, I began to have conversations with a trusted friend, one of our associate pastors named Eric Bobbitt, who listened attentively to my circumstance. And he said, Brad, you know, <clears throat> really, you're... You're here now, but I get the sense that you're really just on your way to Australia, which for you is Wilmore, Kentucky. And with that church's blessing, we moved here in the summer of 2004 for me to finish my two master's degrees, thinking we'd be here 16 months. <laughs> so we moved here. And I committed to the fact that we'd be back to Indiana in 16 months, and when asked to get a Kentucky driver's license, I said, no thanks, we're just passing through. When asked if I wanted to establish a checking account in Wilmore, I said, no thanks, we're only here for 16 months. And when asked to join a church, I said, no thanks, I'm really on my way to Australia. <laughs> a year and a half passed, December 2005, rolled around. I graduated with those two master's degrees, not knowing what we were going to do. And I was offered at that time a two-year teaching fellowship here at Asbury Seminary teaching first-year, excuse me, first-year Greek students. In my second year of teaching, I was invited to apply for our new PhD program in biblical studies. And I applied and was accepted. I think there were eight positions and seven applicants. Those are good odds. <laughs> So I started the program, finished my second year of teaching. Two years became three, three years became four, four years became eight. And it was a wonderful season. In May of last year, I graduated with my PhD in biblical studies by the grace of God. <laughs> Question is, what do we do now? What do we do now? For nearly 16 years, we've been on our way to Australia, and we haven't landed at our destination. We really don't even know what that destination is, and that can be wearisome. I think that my story, in some ways, is some of our story. I think some of us can relate to this circumstance, because seminary 
in so many ways is a liminal season of life. It's an in-between season, a transitional season, an intermediate season. I'm in a small accountability group based on the Wesley band model with Jay Endicott and Brian Yike. And we were talking about this circumstance recently as we were praying together. And Brian looked me dead in the eye and he said, Brad, liminality is our reality. And I thought that is so true. That is so true. Sometimes we come to seminary and we sort of own the fact that we're just passing through. It's a means to an end or a detour or a necessary evil or even worse, an obstacle to overcome or a foe to vanquish. Seminary can be a dark place. In fact, how many of you heard someone say or even thought that graduation is the light at the end of the tunnel? Right? Well, what does that suggest? That means we're living... (laughs) You get it. If you're like me, when you perceive that you're in a dark place, you might make poor decisions from that perspective. Not long after I married Christina and I was doing full-time youth ministry in Indiana, we had our Wednesday night junior high youth meeting and we typically played a game as was our custom. And one of our favorite games to play was called Blob Tag, which is a game of tag. I see the youth workers in the mix right now. (laughs) Amen. So blob tag is a simple game of tag where one person is tagged as it, he or she tags someone, and once they make the tag, they join up. They hook arms, and then as a pair, they go tag someone else. Two becomes three, three becomes four, and so on and so forth. The goal is to be the last person tagged, and if so, you're the winner. And so I said clearly, all right, everybody, we're going to stay in this big multi-purpose room. You may not go into the kitchen, which is dark, and it's out of bounds. And so we're all playing and we're all playing and having a great time. And lo and behold, the last person to be tagged was my beloved bride, Christina, who promptly ran right into the kitchen. So I said, all right, kids, we're going in after her. So this big blob of humanity goes into this kitchen and I'm the one who makes the tag. So I'm holding her hand in the dark kitchen there and we're newly wed and we're starting to make our way out. And I thought, I'm going to capitalize on this opportunity to steal a little kissy on the back of the hand of my blushing bride. So come out into the light and I realize the hand that I'm holding is not the hand of my wife, Christina Johnson, but the hand of 11-year-old Grant Helms. who looks at me through big round glasses as if to say, bad touch, youth director. (laughs) Sometimes we make bad decisions in dark places, amen? (laughs) Can I get a witness? We come to seminary and we treat it as if it's a dark place. And we're waiting for the light at the end of the tunnel. We fail to take advantage of our education. 
We fail to seek meaningful growth while we're here. We fail to plug into a worshiping congregation immediately and stay there. We fail to invest in meaningful relationships because we're just passing through. However, we do some things. We do try to rush through this experience by taking as many courses as we can in the shortest period of time possible. We do jockey for position so as to get the grades, the scholarship, the graduate program, or the appointment that we want. We do create distractions for ourselves, and I am the king of distractions. I found myself yesterday faced with a writing task, and I chose to do the laundry instead. (laughs) A lot of it. One of the distractions I see in my own life and in that of those around me is the escape of social media. It is a narcotic. We've got something we need to do. We don't want to do it. So we go and we ease the pain by entertaining ourselves with amusement. Guilty. Guilty. I've had a large, looming distraction over the last few years, and so many of you who know me know exactly what I'm talking about. See, I love to fish, and I love to boat, and I love to fish from a boat. (laughs) I had the brilliant idea that I would start a business that would combine my recreation with some income potential. So I began a guide service down on the Kentucky, excuse me, the Kentucky River. Started that guide service at a time when I was teaching full-time with overloads every semester. I started that enterprise when I was trying to complete a doctoral program. I started that enterprise when we had four little boys that were ages five and below. Except for Christina, I can think of only one person in our community who ever called me out on that. His last name rhymes with Witherington. (laughs) I believe this view of the seminary season, of the seminary season, is an unwelcome intrusion by the enemy himself. It causes a descent into a funk that replaces gratitude with an insatiable appetite for something and anything else. There was a time when there was no place No place on earth that we would rather be than in a seminary classroom. You remember that time? And some of us now find ourselves in a season of life where there's no place on earth that we'd rather be except a seminary classroom. Nothing has changed about those classrooms. We're the ones who have changed. Our perspectives have changed. I think this is fundamentally an issue of contentment and a lack of it. I've found myself on numerous occasions over the last 16 years saying things like, woe is me. Life is so hard. This is more than I can bear. God would not ask this of me. <laughs> well, I think about the Apostle Paul. 
who said, I found contentment in all circumstances. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Well, what might be some of those circumstances that he's referring to? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that he has experienced far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea. Have you seen Titanic? That is not a pretty circumstance. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He has learned to be content in all circumstances. I think there's a message here for us who are seminary students. I think there's also a message in this for those of us who are in other walks of life. I think that we're guilty of thinking that life will really begin when I get married. Or life will really begin when I become a mother. Or life will really begin when I own my own home or get my first publishing contract. Or life will really begin when I get tenured. Or life will really begin when I get fully funded for my mission trip. Or life will really begin when I retire. God help us. You know, we're not the only ones that find ourselves in liminal seasons of life. Take, for instance, Moses about whom Caitlin graciously read a few moments ago. What we notice about Moses is that he receives a calling. In fact, Exodus 3, verses 1 through 10, contains a number of elements that really constitute this passage as a traditional call narrative. Number one, God identifies a need. His people are suffering, and he hears their cry. Number two, God resolves to act. I will deliver them from their oppression. And number three, God enlists the involvement of a human agent. Moses, go. And I really think that 1 8, chapter 1, verse 8 in this passage is pivotal for this conversation today because God specifically says to Moses, Moses, I want you to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is your ultimate destination. And as we know, Moses delivered faithfully. Well, mostly faithfully, right? I mean, he got the folks out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, to the other side. They look back, the waters crash over the Egyptian army. And the folks look at Moses and say, what do we do now? He says, we charge forward. 
And we know that that route was eventually 40 years before they came to the promised land. But I want to pose an alternate scenario for just a moment. What if Moses was afflicted by Australitis and God were to say to him, Moses, I'd like for you to carry my Ten Commandments down this mountain and use them as a basis for civic order in this generation and in countless generations to come. And Moses might respond, "Uh, Sorry, Lord, but I really must warn you that I'm just passing through on my way to Australia. Moses, I'd like for you to establish an efficient administrative structure for you to adjudicate the civil controversies of Israel. Well, I'm sorry about that, Lord, but I think it's only fair to tell you that I'm just on my way to Australia. Moses, I'd like for you to erect a tabernacle so that my presence might abide with my people as you journey onward. I will inhabit it by day in a cloud and by night in fire. I will be your God and you will be my people. And Moses might say something like, well, sorry, Lord, but I've never made a secret of the fact that I'm really just, say it with me, on my way to Australia. What if we never make it to Australia? What if we never even get there? Moses didn't. He never did make it to his Australia. He saw it but he never stepped a single foot on it. But that certainly didn't prevent him from taking full advantage of staking a claim in the liminal space that he had available to him. Jason McCullough, in the movie Support Your Local Sheriff, didn't make it to Australia either. By the film's end, we learn that he never does leave Calendar, Colorado, which, through his unconventional style and unorthodox way of settling dispute, had become a lovely and peaceful community. McCullough established justice in the streets. He restored dignity to the derelict. He mended deep-seated wounds. And he got married. And he went on to become the governor of Colorado, all the while really just being on his way to Australia. I'm wondering what our legacy will be from this liminal season of life. I'm going to propose an action plan. With the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, let's seize the day. Let's seize this day. Let's remember our calling as Samuel prayed just moments ago. Let's avoid distractions by focusing on what really matters. Let's work hard. Let's work really hard. I'm going to make a bold statement here. I think that we need to work 12 hours a day, six days a week. I think we need to be productive from 8 in the morning till 8 in the evening or something like that. If we're sleeping 10 hours or more, if we're in bed that much, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. Surely we could find enough hours to rest and recreate in those extra waking hours, those six days a week. 
And on the seventh day, let's, let's call a full stop and be at rest and peace with our community. Let's invest in our community. Let's invest in ourselves. I mentioned already that I'm in an accountability group with Brian Yike and Jay Endicott. This is modeled after the Wesleyan band. It's the fruit of what's called the Inspire Movement. You need to talk to Brian about this. This may be what you're after. If you don't know the name Peg Hutchins and the work of the Healing Academy, you may need to. This is an opportunity to invest in ourselves. And I think we need to stake a claim by growing where we're planted. Even though we continue to be in a liminal season ourselves on our way to Australia, I look back and I see a lot of fruit that has come about in these years. We have four amazing little boys. They're full of spit and and vinegar, but they're amazing. We've got a wonderful home. We've got great food. We've got amazing friends. And we worship an amazing God. There's a lot of fruit in this liminal season of life as we continue on our way to Australia. In hindsight, I confess that I have not staked my claim as well as I could and should have during this season. As a result, I've made the journey far more painful than it ever needed to be, and no one knows that more truly than Christina. I confess that. Confess it here, and I confess it now, that I've been distraction. No, 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 no. I've pursued distraction. I repent. I repent. I've sold my boating business, all of it. It is completely liquidated. I have downloaded apps from my phone that were distracting. I mean, wholesome apps, but they were distracting, and they're gone. And thanks in part to students in my vocation of ministry classes, I've recommitted to spiritual disciplines, and I'm finding them to be so fruitful. I'm finding them to be fruitful because they create a welcoming climate for the work of the Holy Spirit who, when I pray, sows extravagantly in me seeds of gratitude. I also pray that these seeds of gratitude that the Spirit sows will produce a bumper crop of generosity with my time, my talents, my presence, my gifts, and my witness. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.